This morning, we uh, finish our summer series looking at some of the Psalms. We have reached Psalm 13. You can turn to that. You have probably quoted this Psalm a number of times in your life without even knowing it. For in verse 1 of Psalm 13, the psalmist begins with, How long, O Lord? I'm imagining those words have come out of your heart. We wonder, Lord, how long, Lord? How, how long will I be alone? How long will I be sick? How long will I struggle to pay my bills? How long will I be oppressed? How long will this unfairness continue? How long will I be misunderstood? How long will pain and suffering stay? In this psalm, the Lord answers our questions. In his goodness, God comes to us to answer how and when will God care for us. So let's look at Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long? Will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Our Heavenly Father, we we come to you who are already here, already with us. We come with our need for understanding that you would light our eyes, our hearts, that you would meet us. Some here do come with the, the pressing question of how long. And for those who are not feeling that that wait this morning, we, we know it comes. And so we ask that in your graciousness, you would help us, that you would meet us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We start by looking at the weight of David's burden. The fact that a problem exists doesn't seem to be the real weight that is on David. It is the prolonged nature of it that is weighing down on him. Four times he cries out, how 
long. David, like, like us, knows troubles will come. We, we realize that. When a trouble sits in and, and just seems that it, it's going to remain, and the, the heaviness begins to build, and how we interact with God starts getting murky, and we find ourselves in a swamp of questions and wonderings and doubts. The, the Hebrew phrase translated how long literally is until where? Where, where is this going? What's, what's going to happen? How is this going to end up? The presence of God felt far away. E- even that God had withdrawn. Will you, will you forget me, verse 1? Lord, will you, will you actually hide your face from me? David can't see any benefit or he has no sense that this situation is being used in any way. That's why in verse 2 he says, must I take counsel in my own soul? Lord, I I don't seem to have any direction from you. I'm just trying to figure things out in my own mind. Those who disregard God, they seem to have the upper hand. Verse 2, shall my enemy exalt over me? Mental anguish, depression, they're, they're seeping into David's soul if, if they haven't actually flooded over his heart. But David is not the only one, is he? A hundred and fifty years ago, the famed preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this about the Psalms. Whenever you look into David's Psalms, you will somewhere or other see yourself. You never get into a corner, but you find David in that corner. There will not be a category of burden, trial, hurt, pain, frustration that we do not find in the Psalms. That is part of why the Psalms are, there's so many of them. And that God would make it such a prominent book, not only in size, right there in the middle of your Bible. You just go to the middle, open it up. There you are, the Psalms. Dealing with every emotion and type of hurt and frustration. God taking his time to work through what we struggle with. God doesn't give these quick, trite answers. So has trouble been so deep and so long that the truths of God seem to be dim? Perhaps you're not... You're not denying God. You're you're just wondering. Are are you in David's corner right now? In the corner with him? Lord, just how long? Well, take heart. 
first that these words we, we read this morning are actually a song that God has given us. The heading is to the choir master, a, a psalm of David. The psalms were, were poems and songs. They were put to music. Uh, this was for the people of God to, as they gathered, sing in worship to God. These questions are not only allowed by God, the Holy Spirit inspired them and gave voice to them and affirmed this is worthy for the people of God to sing as they gather. Uh, there's important implications to that. That these types of questions are part of the worship God gave to his people. It lets us know that enduring burden does not mean God is against you. Enduring burden doesn't mean God is against you. For the Spirit of God himself captured the heart of this enduring burden on David and said, many of my people are burdened, so I will give voice to it. So through the ages, the people of God would sing of this and know that I hear. It shows that faith, true, deep, Strong faith is not pretending, oh, I'm fine. Think of Jesus, Matthew 26, the Garden of Gethsemane, praying the same thing three times. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, let this cup pass, but not my will, yours be done. Was Jesus weak in faith as he prayed over and over? No, faith is what kept him praying over and over until his heart had rest. God gives us room for lament. Indeed, the Holy Spirit gives lament as a form of worship. We, lament has been coming back into the conversation of the church in recent years, uh, there have been a number of theological works and attention given to it because we, we tend to want to come together and just sing what kind of makes us feel good and happier. Uh, and, and there's lots of reason and good in that, but the fact that we when we come together, we're reminded that life is hard for many, and there's sorrow. If the Holy Spirit laments with us, then we must be lamenting with people and with each other. If the Spirit enters into the lament, He doesn't just say, hey, knock it off. If he enters in and inspires it, we should be that way. Uh, 
We're often, particularly in times of grief, we want to jump to helping people fix and feel better. And that's not how the Bible leads us. We need to sit and, and mourn with those who mourn as we rejoice with those who rejoice. We, we need to recognize these, these burdens are hard, and just to, to agree with them and how hard this is and sorrow with them and not try to move quickly to trying to make them feel better so we can kind of move off to the side and think, okay, that's done. And in trying to make people feel better and fix things, we often say things that are actually hurtful, not helpful. And this lament that includes people who lament things that we don't identify with them, it's hard for us to understand it. It means lamenting with burdens of the world which have become a battlefield because the world wants to yell at each other rather than care for each other. And biblical lament is the willingness, even if we don't understand why people are burdened as they are, to just sit with them in pain knowing that the solutions are not the solutions of the world or even the solutions they think. The solutions are always the gospel, always. But let us not, because we disagree with people's solutions, fail to lament with them in what is their pain. What is it that David wants from God? He tells us in Verses 3 and 4, consider, answer me, light up my eyes. He wants God's attention. Consider and answer me. Lord, over here, I'm here. Lord, do you, do you really see what I'm in? He wants understanding from God. He wants it to make sense. Lord, light up my eyes. Help me, help me to see what it is you're doing. Is there something of, of, of eternal worth? Is your hand in action? Let me see. And he wants God's justice. Verse 4, lest my enemies say they've prevailed. Lord, don't let people have their way. Lord, be my defender. And these are all good requests. There's no hint of rebuke from God against David for any of these requests. Lord, see me. Lord, bring understanding to me. Lord, defend me. God is... is the most wondrous person in existence. No one is more wonderful than God. And he hears and he cares. We can expect of God 
what we had expected, the most loving, caring, wonderful person that we know in this world, we can expect that and more from God. Because no one is more wonderful than him. The Bible warns us that trouble will come. Indeed, this psalm, as the more I was studying it, the more I saw, once again, God's kindness of timing, that this psalm would prepare the way that really the psalms of these last weeks for First Peter, for the, the, the biggest theme in First Peter is suffering. And that we would begin that book next week, having looked at God's care for us through lament. And so through First Peter, we will have increasing understanding of how we interact with true suffering in our lives. We live in a sinful world that rebels against God, and as the people of God, we are living against the tide of the world. So it is impossible for suffering not to be here. There cannot be widespread, widespread rebellion against the truths of God and it not bring great sorrow. Not because God's throwing sorrow at the world, it's because the Word of God is perfectly good and you cannot reject goodness and truth and end up with goodness in your lives. It is impossible. You cannot say, I reject the wisdom of God, and it ends well. And when an entire world of billions of people live that way, it's just layer upon layer of suffering. The only way out of it is the perfect and complete reign of God. In this psalm, God helps shape how we lament in hard times because we will have them. However, if we ignore Christ, we cannot expect God's response that he, he tells us he has for his people. In Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord speaks to this clearly. The prophet says in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 59, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. The Lord can help, the Lord hears. But, okay, what's getting in the way? Your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. We cannot expect the grace of God when we reject the Word of God and reject the Son of God who came to bring the salvation of God. We cannot just push God out of the way and want Him to protect and give grace and hear and serve our needs. But if that's, if that's been you, there is a cry for help. That God always hears. 
and always answers. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. It does not say, if you come to church for a while, it does not say after you've been baptized, it does not say when you've cleaned up your life, it says everyone who comes and calls, Lord, would you save me? The Lord says, yes, I will. And in that moment, he instantaneously and permanently and completely saves by taking the blood of his son, Jesus, God in flesh, who lived in this world and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice, paying the debt our sins deserve before God. Jesus paid that. And when we call upon Christ to meet us, the Lord says, that sin that weighed on you, that has been taken, the blood of Christ cleansed you, and you are now mine. And now the doors have just been thrust open and cannot be closed to the goodness and mercy of God remaining upon us. Jesus saves all who call on him in faith. It's not just, Lord, oh, yeah, I'm in trouble now. Do something about it. It's those who call on him in faith. And Romans 10 also describes that in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is the belief that Jesus died on the cross paying for sins and then rose from the dead physically conquering sin and death. And he is Lord who reigns. And we come for him to save us and we bow the knee, be, the knee because he is Savior and Lord. That's who he is. So wanting him to save without him as Lord is denying who he is. Will you trust him in his death and resurrection for your sin? Will you trust him to rule your life? He, he hears that cry, the, and he knows what an honest cry of the heart is. We can be deceived. We can deceive ourselves. He knows what it is. And in this very moment, everyone who, who cries out that will be saved, which means then all that the Word, God said, the Word of God says about His care for us and all that we see in the psalm, now that is talking about you too. David finds hope in this psalm, in the reality that God has already responded. He's, he's asking how long, and he's wondering about God's attention. And those are his real feelings, and that's what life seems like. And he's honestly sharing, Lord, this, this is what's going on. But he does know the Lord. 
and the Spirit of God that gave voice to his, his cries of pain also then gives voice to the realities of what God has already done. And in that, we find our hope. What has God already done? So that even when circumstances don't change, what Christ has already done does change everything. First, God has already committed to love us unfailingly. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God has already committed to steadfastly love us, to love us unfailingly. The phrase steadfast love is is a core phrase running through Scripture. It refers to not just the emotions of love, the feelings of love. It, It refers to a covenant commitment of love. God's commitment to love us and that never changes and never ceases. It is the idea behind 1 Corinthians 13.8 which in describing to us what love looks like says love never fails. And we read that and think, oh yes it does. Well, it does with each other because we don't always love. It doesn't with God. The phrase never fails means never falls off. It's the picture of a blossom that, that never falls off the stem. It, it always stays in bloom. Love always stays in bloom. Ours doesn't. God's does. It never ceases to be in bloom. Ever. And so we have in in Romans chapter 8 the same idea coming up again when the question comes, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and the, the Bible immediately answers, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will be able to. God's intimate loving presence is always here, fully here. How do, how do I know? How do I know? Because we have the presence of God incarnate. Jesus, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. How do we know God took upon himself humanity, entered the world. That's how much he loves us. God demonstrated his love for us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more proof do we need? Not only do we have the presence of God incarnate, we have the presence of God indwelling. For when the physical Jesus ascended to heaven, he says, I'm sending you the comforter, the helper, who is with you and will be in you forever. 
And from the moment of Pentecost onward, the Spirit fell. And everyone at the moment they come to Christ, they are already having the Spirit in them. That's how we come. The Spirit already came ahead of our confession. The Spirit meeting us, causing us to see the gospel. His commitment is before ours. And he regenerates us, and then he stays. He just stays. God indwelling, God incarnate. The loving presence of God is here, people of God. We find hope in knowing what God has already done in his love for us. We, we have hope in knowing that God has already acted to deliver us from all sorrow and evil. Verse 5, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We have the salvation of God, meaning God has taken care of our forever sorrow and burden and hurt. God is going to deal with every pain permanently and forever. Everything that burdens you, everything that's frightening, everything that's hard, in Christ, it's already solved forever. And he wants us to see that. He's already done the greater. Well, why isn't the lesser gone? And I'm with you on that. I, I want every problem gone. There's not a single problem I want to stay. But every burden and sorrow is temporary. It is temporary. Well, I want it to be faster. Well, that means death. Death will take care of it all. We can't take care of all of it before then because we're still in a sinful world. Not only is it all temporary, all of it is incomparable with the gospel of Jesus. If we don't see the vast difference between the burdens we have and the grace we have, if we don't see the vast difference in measure, do we really grasp the gospel? Have we really seen and met Jesus? And if we claim that we do, and we act as though the burdens and what God has done are kind of the same, we are minimizing God. There is simply nothing with more wonder and majesty and beauty and grace than the coming of Jesus in death and resurrection to save us. Nothing compares. And thirdly, God is already working in us according to his good purpose. Uh, Brian Fairchild is a pastor in Texas, good friend of mine. He's on the board of Sea Global. Recently, he finished his doctorate dealing with laments. And so I contacted him 
So just what are your thoughts on laments and the passage? And he said, what stood out to me most in that particular chapter, he said, this is golden was his terminology. That the words God has dealt bountifully with us, he said the more literal translation of that is God has matured me. God is at work in every difficulty for the purpose of making us more like Christ. He will be faithful in working in us. He is growing us. And so uh, we have passages like James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers. Oh, yeah, many of you probably have that right above your, right on your refrigerator. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That, what it says, that's what God's like. Steadfast love toward us. We, we count it all joy because God is using these to make you more like Him. Not only making us more like Him, but through it we serve others. Uh, David went through these trials in part so that thousands of years later it would minister to us. And what God is doing in you through trials is ministering to others. And it glorifies him. As we will see in Peter, that we share the sufferings of Christ. God is active in it. It gets to our sense of wanting to see purpose in difficulties. God has done his part. How are we to respond? Three things that we see here. We, we trust, we rejoice, we sing. Verse 5, we trust the love God has displayed. We, we believe he's, he's being faithful and we live that way. We cooperate with what God is doing. Think about your willingness to cooperate with a surgeon who has just told you he's going to cut open your body and take stuff out. And you go, oh, okay. And he gives you a list of things to do before and after, and you go, oh, okay, and, and how much do I need to pay you for this? We cooperate with surgeons, plunging a knife into your body, cutting it open, pulling your flesh apart, grabbing his hand in and sucking things out. That's how I imagine it. When we were in Guatemala, we visited a hospital, and a surgeon asked if we wanted to go in during surgery and watch. Debbie's like, yeah! I'm outside. If we cooperate with plunging knives in our body and taking stuff out, we can cooperate with the surgical work of God in our soul. We can trust him enough with what he's doing. 
We can rejoice, verse 5, rejoice in the salvation. There's a practice that has affected my life more than anything. It, it was revolutionary. In Habakkuk chapter 3, when he speaks of everything going wrong in the nation, and he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And when I began to see and practice, I will praise before I ask, and I will praise more than I ask. And it took a while, but God used that practice to work in me more than anything else I can think of. There's a lot we need to ask, but there's even more we need to praise him for. And that orientation of praising before asking, I, I encourage you to labor toward it. And then he says, sing. Sing to the Lord who works all things for our good, meaning give voice to it. We always have something to say about the grace of God. So before we complain, let's speak of grace. So which is greater, people of God? The reasons we have to complain or Jesus and his gospel that saves. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that your word would serve your people, meeting them out of your great love and grace. Give us eyes to see Christ, the gospel, the promise that we have. And those who have not had eyes to see it, Lord, just open them in this service. Use this meal before us to root these truths in us. In Jesus' name, amen.